everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MSHP podcast. I'm Rob Fields, uh, Senior Vice President and CMO for Pop Health. Um, and I have a star member of our team talking with us today. <laughs> I have Neha Dovley, who's a Senior Manager for Practice Improvement uh, on our team. And um, uh, Neha, first of all, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. <laughs> so uh, one of the reasons we talked about you doing this podcast um, was that you have the unique perspective of having visited with so many of our frontline docs and have a charge of essentially trying to execute on all the grand plans <laughs> that we all muster up as a team and have, you know, obviously have a lot of teaching and learning you can provide for us. So we're excited to have you on. Absolutely. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how you landed at Sinai. You have a crazy past. You've done some cool stuff. So tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's not the most linear path to pop health, but um, I started undergrad thinking that, you know, I was going to be a provider as well. I wanted, I was very much interested in being an OB guy and mm-hmm. um, I come from an immigrant family and that's where, you know, that was the path and yeah. uh, soon realized, well, that, that my interests were much more va- varied and more on a policy kind of level and also more on a 360 degree like strategy level. Mm -hmm. So after undergrad, um, I was very lucky to get a lot of great opportunities where I got to travel abroad. Um, I worked, I went abroad, I got a Princeton fellowship to go work in Uganda. So I worked with programs that were affiliated with the UN and did a lot of data work there. Um, And being so grassroots oriented, I realized like, oh, healthcare really has so many facets to it that you can't really see it from one lens. Um, So I came back, got my MPH at Tulane, which is another kind of level of looking at health because New Orleans is just this totally different form of healthcare, especially post Katrina. Yeah, I bet can't imagine. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's. I mean, well, one small anecdote is like our dean kind of introduced us as like, welcome to the third world of the Americas. And that's not something you hear often. Yeah, no, right. (laughs) So uh, from there, I just continued to realize that my interests were and the work that I wanted to do in healthcare was uh, much more on a granule level, which gives me so much insight to change things, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's where things happen. (laughs) So... um, Making this long story very short, I, after that, I got some really amazing opportunities to work with four different startups, uh, and this is something I'm kind of proud about, but uh, we were able to take those startups from like seed funding to Series mm-hmm. A, and they all ranged from working in uh, in India for like building facility, like toilet facilities and mm-hmm. figuring out like water energy sources from there to right. like maternal child health programs and MCH is something that I studied in college as well and, right. and, and, and um, for my grad school degree for within my MPH. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so that kind of brought me to federal health. And that's so I went from international to <laughs> <Right>. national and <laughs> right, right. Uh, all from this kind of viewpoint of just women's health. <laughs> sure. So is, is, is New York national or international? How do you, how do you view New York work in New York? I think some days it can it's, be both. <laughs> Well, uh, for those of you listening, this is why I feel grossly inadequate in this job because there are all sorts of creepy people that have these <laughs> really amazing backgrounds um, doing really cool stuff. So uh, anyway, uh, it's good to be on this team. Um, so Neha, tell if we can get back to the present in terms of the work that you're 
um, doing now. And, and there's some of it that's just, I'm sure, a grind in the day-to-day as everyone that does try to do, that tries to do pop health can attest to. There's some daily grind sorts of things. If you can share even a little bit of that, like what, what that is like, but then also describe like the bigger picture, what, you know, how you see your role affecting things. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, you know, um, I have the privilege of kind of being this conduit between what MSHP does and taking that to providers and then listening to what they have to say and bringing that feedback back to our team so we can improve. Um, and that and, and, and even internally here being part of and working with all different teams. So uh, it really is kind of seeing everyone's it's not siloed anymore you know Mm -hmm. so from that perspective just first to gain the trust of the providers and making sure that you know they're heard so basic level of just human like i i see you i hear you (laughs) i understand this is a problem right so from that kind of perspective of just understanding what the flow is and not being the one like hey this is what you have to do Mm -hmm. um so that having that in mind and just from a day-to-day perspective it's a lot of it is just yeah i understand you have issues in your staffing i i know your all these providers are very excited about implementing all these changes but day to day they oftentimes they can because they ra- they have to tre- treat these 20 patients mm-hmm. and none of this is like you know news that none of us have heard before but it's also just having to like remind ourselves mm-hmm. that they're excited to do this work but we just have to make it easy for them <laughs> right i mean yeah people will fundamentally do the right thing if if you you know make the path to get there a lot easier right they will ultimately do the easier thing in almost every instance. <laughs> yeah. Um, and hopefully that's the right thing if we design it correctly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, when I, you mentioned a couple of things in there, uh, one of the items that I know you concentrate on is having discussions around workflow. Um, we can design wonderful things on paper and then get it down to the practices mm-hmm. and it doesn't fit somehow. Tell me how you how you view that, how you have those discussions around workflow, maybe some examples of Yeah, I mean, I think the real big benefit that we've seen in these provider engagement meetings is that around workflows that providers ask their staff to be part of them Mm -hmm. because their staff, whether it's MAs, practice managers, their nurses, they're the even even more so of the frontline workers, you know, like they're the ones who see the patients get them in screened and all of it and ready for the visit for the provider mm-hmm. to like test them for whatever that's needed. So just having their presence in these meetings and understanding what pop health is at large is super important for their workflows. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, we can figure out financial models or workflow models that are great for all from a 360 degree, mm-hmm. but why not use and optimize the MAs more? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, you know, that could reduce time for like things like depression screening from the provider point of view mm-hmm. or any of the screenings really. Um, and it makes them a valuable member of the team as well. So, right. yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's very interesting to see in terms of what innovat- innovative ways that we can think about mm-hmm. in workflows. Um, and we often do see that, and it is confirmed over and over again. <laughs> yeah. We used to talk about, I, I remember working on redesign work in the past and um, realized, you know, obviously there's a ton of value in the MAs, but we, um, the couching it for the MAs that if, if they owned, or you use the example of screenings, you know, depression screening, uh, 
assigning value to that, like to mm-hmm. having those conversations with the MAs, like every time you screen someone for depression and you yeah. find someone, that's someone that's high risk of having you know, chronic illness, of potentially having um, e- either more, you know, worsening depression, even suicidality. I mean, when you, it has meaning. When you screen someone and find yeah. these people, it's an opportunity to intervene. Um, and the, it, it, as you said, I mean, it provides a lot more meaning to their job than just yeah. clocking it in, doing vitals all day, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if I can share one quick please, success yeah, story, yeah, uh, you know, shout out to our practice over in Queens. Um, one of our Queens practices, there's an MA that was there who screened someone for uh, pancreatic cancer and like called it out to attention. And that's amazing that, it, you know, like within just having a conversation, the MA was able to identify it to the provider like, hey, I think maybe you should check something like this. So mm-hmm. just having that valuable kind of care resource that maybe could have potentially been missed. We don't know. But yeah. like it's a point of care that is very hard to ignore, especially because they provide so much support. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you, um, and that was a, a situation, I think, where um, you know, they had established such a good rapport and communication between the MA and the doc. When right. the MA hears or has their own instincts about what's yeah. going on, they flag it, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's um, the whole development of teams uh, yeah. and effective teams. Um, how, uh, you know, going back to th- that's those are maybe the, I would imagine, some of the best parts of your job when you see, when you're able to engage a conversation or, or or promote those opportunities, um, uh, encourage workflows. Tell me about some of the more like painful parts of the job that you have to try to get providers to do that are also <laughs> part of the way. Because that's, I mean, that's being real for a second. There's also <laughs> stuff that's less glamorous. Um, I mean, my job is great all the time. <laughs> no. She says as, I'm, as <laughs> we're doing a podcast together. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, of course. There's the, <laughs> <laughs> um, the pain points are obvious in any sort of circumstance where you're trying to move mountains and create something innovative. Um, the What I would like to see, that which is not only a pain point from our standpoint of view or my standpoint of view, but also from a provider or, you know, any just like external, like client-facing standpoint is just why do we have to make things harder for them in terms of let's say emr optimization mm-hmm. you know like if someone wants to do something quickly and have that support system be ready for a patient they sometimes providers have to after their meeting or after that patient appointment have to ex- exit emr and then go to their outlook and then kind of do like add those extra documentation mm-hmm. hours so why can't we have emr optimization be fully built out to the best of our ability mm-hmm. um to what degree do you see providers complaining? I mean, it, because you touch so many people, I'm sure you hear lots of good things that are happening, but you also, unfortunately, we all, that's part of all of our jobs, we hear all the complaints. Yeah. Um, what about the EMR? Do they, what are there specific <laughs> aspects that they complain about? I mean, I know I've heard plenty, but I'm curious from your point of view. Yeah, so definitely going back to the example of, um, you know, making sure that they don't have to exit the EMR to address the patient's needs. So one example of that would be like if anyone is a patient needs a cardiologist. So let's look up the cardiologist that has the right access and availability Mm -hmm. within our system that we trust. So let's just incorporate that within the EMR, you know, Mm -hmm. like have that ability to 
create that consultation or have that feedback loop back to the PCP so they get that uh, all the notes in the right or even care management. Um, all of those things living in the one like one stop shop would mm-hmm. be absolutely ideal in terms of the best care that we can provide our patients. And often we do say our PCPs are the quarterback. So. Right let's treat our quarterback like we would be paid like any of the football players. I mean, I don't know football, but (laughs) I do know (laughs) that quarterbacks get the most attention. So let's make the PCBs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly that. (laughs) Um, Do you you get a sense of, do you work with specialists also in your work? So we do like, I do work with a specialist, not as much as we work with PCPs, Hmm. of course. And, you know, definitely at MSHP, we're trying to build out our specialist engagement program. Mm -hmm. Um, The little interaction that we do get is mostly around their requirements, which Mm -hmm. nobody wants to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I often don't want to do my own requirements. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But uh, having said that, the, you know, there, there is some value to just understanding as to like what they want to be part of and how they want it because yes of course they would love to have receive more patients from a pcp but they you know there's a huge value in whether it's a urologist or a cardiologist or gi whoever um to also understand like okay if we're going to be innovative care like yeah we're moving away from fee for service but what does that healthcare trend look like mm-hmm. overall and mm-hmm. we do have to feel that question often you know like Okay, so as we're moving away from, towards this capitative model, is what does this really mean for a specialist in general? Yeah, yeah what does it mean for me? I mean, yeah. I, I agree. That's often a, it's probably the most common question, and I feel like you know, uh, and I hear this from my pop health colleagues all across the country is that answering that question often gets lost in the data because it's in a really important one. If you don't get if you don't answer that correctly, you're going to mm-hmm. lose your people, right? Yeah. Because they're not motivated to do the work. Um, but it does often get lost in the clicky boxy nonsense yeah. that we make people do. Um, and that, that's sort of the challenge I feel like of our jobs is, you know, I, I always say if the if the only thing you ever think about when you think of pop health is having to click a box in the yeah. EMR, then we've totally failed, right? As Definitely. as a messenger. <laughs> um, you. So speaking of, I mean, the we've you talked about EMR optimization and the lack thereof in many cases. Talked about maybe this staffing optimization and maybe the lack thereof mm-hmm. for not because people don't want to on either of those, but they lack the time, expertise, um, et cetera, to do it. And I'm curious about your thoughts, having seen so many different physicians and talked to them all about how all of this contributes to burnout. You know, we had yeah. Jonathan on the podcast a while back right. talking about burnout, but from the frontline perspective and as an observer, um, what are your thoughts around how that, how you see it yeah. playing out? Well, this is, you know, very kind of like near and dear to my heart and also just an interesting kind of phenomenon nationally um, in terms of like before when I was thinking about and discussing how do you build trust? So there has to be some level of therapy (laughs) involved. It has to be going back to again, like I hear you, I see you, I understand this is a problem. But in terms of like physician burnout, I think what I like to go back to is like, well, if you're struggling so much, then rate me like tell me how I'm doing good or bad or you know like I understand the system is also putting any sort of health system is putting a lot of pressure on people but also if the it's not that the providers aren't performing you know it's like the system is messed up that's mm-hmm. why we're all here and that's why we mm-hmm. all have jobs we're trying to like improve the system Great, yeah fix the system right? yeah so 
it could be potentially helpful to like have an internal like net promoter score of some sort because obviously the patient uh, providers get scored on from the patient's point of view from like prescani or mm-hmm. whatever so um why so not the issue have- would be like how are how in their point of view how are we doing in our attempt to fix the system is that what you're getting at yeah absolutely i think there is a huge element of let's hold ourselves accountable to the same sort of performance metrics that we hold our providers accountable to you know Mm -hmm. like how are we providing them their best resources so they can provide the top of their licenses Mm -hmm. um i think this is something and i know this is in discussion but uh it's just something that i like to always get back to because I don't know. At the end of the day, I like empathize. <laughs> I, I feel for all the providers sure. because I see that they're all just like lovely people and, <laughs> right. and just providing struggling. good care. Yeah, and while struggling, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Neha, you are queen for the day. You have complete authority over all of pop <laughs> health at Sinai. And in order to accomplish those things, like what, what would you do to get us to the goals that we've set out for ourselves? Um, while also keeping in mind the human part of, of provider engagement. Yeah. Are there a couple things that you would focus on? Definitely. So definitely if I have that ma- magic wand, um, I mean, going back to the MAs problem, I think that's something that, that I think is very valuable that we mm-hmm. can't ignore. Uh, and I know there's been financial models that have shown mm-hmm. like increase in MAs, increases in revenue too. So definitely start off there how do we redesign care for like the next generation? Um, Baby boomers has always been a focus and currently, but also if the millennial group is approaching and (laughs) they're approaching Mm -hmm. fast and just from an like automation point of view too, it's just, I, if I had like kind of like that magic wand, I want to start thinking about things that are future trending and Mm -hmm. what that means for just our day to day. Like, yeah, we can continuously address the care management point of views for Mm -hmm. clinical ops right now. And of course there, these patients need our help, but I would like to see more about the future kind of trends Mm -hmm. and like have like a side tangent, like trend. And of course everyone here is also doing that. Um, Yeah. Um, but that's just where my interest and kind of head always goes. Yeah, it's it's hard, right? To be uh, it's hard to be a health system for sure because you're having to transform from what a health system was supposed to be. Really, and they haven't changed that much since over the last century into now a population health entity, which is a lot less about yeah. hospitals and concrete right. and overhead and infrastructure and about how we manage patients and alternate deliveries of care based on data and analytics. And then we think about how that translates to your point to the future with a group of patients and a population that has always leaned on digital technology mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. That's gonna be a whole different problem to yeah. solve. We'll have to innovate again, yeah. uh, even in terms of how we do it. Well, actually, let me turn this question back to you now. Like, you know, you know, someone who's a senior leader, like how do you see this from like a policy standpoint? Because I know like a lot of our ACOs mm-hmm. are dependent on what happens on federal policies because mm-hmm. that's an arena that's also mm-hmm. supposed to be innovative but like how do you address that from like a future trending <laughs> and yeah no th- those are good questions and totally you know unfair in a podcast where you're supposed to be the interviewee <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> no no just kidding uh you know i i think i think that's uh that's really tricky i i think the things that would allow us to pivot when we think about the future, and we know there, what, what is 100% certain is that we will have to change again, right, and transform to solve the problems of the future. 
and with a consumer base that's very different than the baby boomers of now. Um, and I think the only way to pivot at that speed that will be required is to have greater management over how the funding sources happen. So I think to that degree, mm-hmm. it's consistent with what we're doing now, right? Like if we take on uh, as systems we're being pushed, and I, I certainly welcome it, frankly, to take on greater and greater financial risk where we get to say how the money's being spent, that gives us much greater flexibility to pivot you know, mm-hmm. in the future. I think part of the problems part of the problem with the current system from a funding standpoint, and I'll get to the policy in a minute, is that we are we can't function the the finances are really separate mm-hmm. from us in a fee for service world and we're ha- having to constantly negotiate transformation with what's yeah. being what's fundable essentially. Um, and that slows things down tremendously. Mm-hmm. You know, if we you know by controlling the funding, frankly, that gets us a little bit closer to the king or queen of the day question. Like, hey, we control it. We need to do X to serve our patients better. The cent- incentives financially are aligned to pivot in that way because that's what the people need. So let's do that. Um, we can't do that today in fee-for-service because we're constantly having to negotiate with some other third party, whether it's you know the federal government yeah. or a payer or something like that. So I think that's where I would love to take it is that I think it's consistent with our goal to – uh, to intertwine the finances of healthcare with the delivery systems. From a from a policy standpoint, I um, and there's part of this that may seem incongruent with what I just said, but um, I think one of the really terrible incentives in the way how U.S. healthcare is structured is that the things that are most meaningful in the lives of patients from a preventive health standpoint happen really early. You know, you can go prenatal perinatal and mm-hmm. early childhood interventions, both at the individual level and at the family societal level. But who's going to make those investments when the return on those investments don't happen for 10, 20, 30 years? Mm-hmm. You know, so, and the answer is no one. I think part of the reasons why the U.S. has not invested fully in real, like, more significantly in public health or even meaningful preventive health compared mm-hmm. to other countries is that there's no one fully at risk for the outcomes of that over the period of someone's life. So all of the funders of things from a policy standpoint, even a government standpoint, have are very short-sighted. They want to see the return on that investment in three, four, five years, because that's how often someone stays on their plan. Probably the most, the longest relationship is probably in Medicaid, kids on Medicaid, because you have them for probably, you know, 18 years. and so you see more interesting, innovative things happening in Medicaid as a result because they'll see the return on that. Um, but, you know, I think that it gets a little – that's what I would do from a policy standpoint, frankly, is think yeah. about, uh, you know, I love the leaning that it needs to be universal access of some sort from birth. Um, and I would prefer a single-payer system for that reason, mm-hmm. that the way healthcare is not is different than any other commodity in that way, that I think in order to make meaningful investments, you have to be on the hook financially yeah. for a long enough period of time to see the return. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the whole so, womb to tomb kind of yeah, exactly. mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll see. You know, we'll see if we get there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you, uh, bef- you know, one of the things you mentioned as we got started is some projects that you have seen uh, or some initiatives, and you mentioned one from Robert Wood Johnson that takes advantage of some of the micro-innovation. So one of the things that, you know, I think to promote excitement is let's leverage the shared experiences of the frontline providers you were talking about there. So tell me a little bit about 
that or, or at least that example is something that population health entities can do to support some of that frontline innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just within my interest of like how can we can make the frontline kind of industry mm-hmm. like better and be innovative on in that. Um, again, shout out to Robert Wood Johnson because they se- seem to have cracked the nut on this. But uh, they have this program called Maker's Nurse. And um, it's uh, from go- what Google tells me, you know, it's a kind of like a shark tank for nurses. And they get to bring and pitch ideas as to how they can improve their day-to-day lives and workflows and Robert Johnson funds those ideas and brings them to creation. Um, so I think that's so valuable because at the end of the day, like they know the problems best and they know how to solve them the best. So yes, we can go to a solution or a problem like this and definitely come up with like a theoretical solution, but the nuts and bolts are with our frontline workers. Um, so I think that's like a really great program to look at as a best practice. And, and at the end of the day, like, you know, um, as as high up as we can go on a strategy level it's awesome but having acknowledging our frontline workers is building this trust within this team and mm-hmm. making it efficient which is so valuable in providing care mm-hmm. um and i think that you know that's what it leads to it's just build, creating this space of comfort and like safe environment to practice and be as creative as possible um right and just brings it all full circle. <laughs> yeah. And I imagine, uh, you know, you're, people like to talk about their innovations and, hey, look what I've done, you know, and yeah. it, it, I'm sure it provides some energy to those frontline folks that are kind of stuck in the daily. Yeah, daily definitely. Concept. I mean, something like, think about of. all the excitement that's yeah. there. Like, right. if I created something, I would be talking about it all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. No, that's absolutely true. So, Neha, I appreciate your time. I, I want to end with one other thought from you is, you know, you as a there isn't a conference that I go to where people don't ask about the secret of engaging providers in a meaningful <laughs> way. Um, and so, you know, as a as a very thoughtful and successful person on that team and engaging providers in work that sometimes they just don't want to do um, or they're not they don't wake up thinking about it as something like, hey, I want to do this today. What are the characteristics, if you're going to advise mm-hmm. systems on the kind of people that they should look for to do this kind of work, you know, what are those characteristics? What are the things that make you effective in your job? <laughs> Our secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, or your secret sauce specifically. Like what, you know, what, what makes these roles important, meaningful, effective? You know, yeah. what, are, what are those characteristics, you think? I mean, I think what I see on the provider engagement team for all of our colleagues, you know, is just that everyone is excited and driven by the same mission and and being excited about that and bringing it to the providers. You bring the same level of enthusiasm, Um, at least from my end. I can only obviously speak from how I see things. And um, I the reason I have really good relationships with a lot of these providers is just being there for them and listening to them and being attentive to their needs and trying to think proactively as mm-hmm. to what that could mean if, you know, if we're going to ha- implement this new measure for them to be me- um, having any sort of bonus incentives based on, well, what is that going to mean for them on a day-to-day kind of way of implementing it? You know, for example, like any sort of diabetic measures, like is that going to mean they need a new retina scan or what? <laughs> yeah. So I think just being proactive about someone's needs is obviously mm-hmm. makes any any team player uh, mm-hmm. effective in their role. 
Uh, but in just terms of engaging providers, I think it's just like being enthusiastic about your work. I think that's number one for at least for me. Yeah. Awesome. And I just love our team. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we do have a good team. And, you know, I, I think as you as you have mentioned a couple of times during our conversation today is all the things that you said and also feel like the the humanity of it that, that mm-hmm. you bring, I know, and the rest of our team does is, is really important. So I certainly appreciate your time. Likewise. I feel like one of those longtime listeners, first-time <laughs> callers. <laughs> Oh, gosh, you, you, you must aim higher. Now. So if anyone listening has ideas for a future podcast, please uh, email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. And appreciate everyone listening and uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't mind, that'd be really great. Thanks. Bye.